0: Today's episode is sponsored by Cambridge Life Insurance. When I left my corporate job in 2015, there was a lot on my mind. Not only was I wondering what I'd do, if I'd made the right decision, and if I had the funds to do so, I had another worry. As a sole breadwinner, were the right safety nets in place to protect my wife, Lisa, and daughter, Soraya, who was one at the time? I needed to get the right life insurance policy that accounted for my transition into entrepreneurship and our aspirations to grow our family. At first, I called a few insurance companies and got quotes directly from their websites. It was confusing, tedious, and I couldn't make sense of the pricing. Around that time, I was introduced to Kenny and the team at Cambridge Life Insurance. They made the process seamless, transparent, and since I was already parallel processing with the traditional carriers, I had proof that they were actually cheaper. They were so committed to the customer experience that Kenny hunted me down in Brooklyn, covered in sweat, so I could lock in my policy less than 24 hours before we got on a plane to Bali with a one-way ticket. And as an insurance agent, Cambridge works for the client, not the insurance company, so I knew my interests were fully aligned. Whether you're a newlywed, new parent, or new business owner, contact Cambridge Life Insurance for a complimentary assessment on personal or life insurance planning. Visit bit.ly slash gocamlife. That's bit.ly slash gocamlife. Welcome to the Rad Awakenings podcast. I'm Kay he. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their rad awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. You could say that Scott Norton is a prototypical millennial. He's a tinkerer with a creative and entrepreneurial streak. Scott graduated in 2008 and began his career at Lehman Brothers weeks before it went under. There's a school of thought that says the credit crisis crushed economic mobility for a generation of millennials. Scott disagrees. For him, the crisis catalyzed a trip around Asia on a foldable bike spanning 23 countries and 100 cities. And upon his return, he co-founded Sir Kensington's, challenging the CPG empire of ketchup and mayonnaise. We dig into mission-driven businesses. Are they marketing hype or actually changing the world? Regardless, big business has noticed. Last year, Unilever acquired them for a fresh $140 million. Does a spectacular success like this change you? Yes, of course, it takes economic failure off the table. But contentment, presence with loved ones, a quiet mind, and yes, even freedom don't change overnight and can remain strangely elusive. Please enjoy my conversation with Scott Norton. Hello everyone. Welcome to the Rad Awakenings podcast. Today's guest is Scott Norton. How's it going, man?
1: It's going great, Kay. It's so great to be here.
0: Let's start with what were you like as a kid?
1: Oh man, that's a great question. You know, part of me wonders if I even know what I was like because, you know, I was experiencing it from my own perspective and not the perspective of others. But I think I was insanely curious I asked an unbelievable amount of questions to everyone around me, especially my dad. And he would always answer those questions. His dad was a scientist and his dad you know, told him everything. And so he had a lot of answers for me, but there were some times when he said, I have no idea, Scott. I loved school actually. And I loved learning. And you know, a lot of kids around me I remember they would like dread going to school or like dread going back to school after the summer. And I actually liked it, which was kind of crazy and, and a gift. I loved to build things with my hands. So I had a tree house and I loved to skateboard. So I would build skateboard ramps and skateboards. And that was kind of my, my childhood. And this was in Northern California? Exactly, yeah. Which part? I was born in San Francisco and then we grew up on the peninsula in what is now known as Silicon Valley. And your dad, what did he do for work? My dad was a director, film and television director, and my mom was a producer and they worked together as a team. Oh, wow. Yeah. So film and film, television, and primarily commercial production. So not necessarily things you'd see on TV, but in technology in biotechnology and life sciences, pharmaceuticals, they would make movies, videos, and communication around those companies.
0: You answered it in in one way. Did that creativity kind of percolate down into
1: your kind of everyday machinations of of childhood? Absolutely. I mean, I think I'm very much my parents' son. You know, my, my dad is an amazing storyteller and I would say an artist. And my mother is an incredible entrepreneur and business person and kind of cutter of red tape and kicker of ass and taker of names. And so I'm probably a little bit. More in in my dad's elk than my mom's, but both of them influenced me tremendously. And so
0: you went to Brown undergrad. Mm -hmm. Did you have a sense of what you were going to
1: do when you grew up? Well, when I started in college, you know, growing up in Northern California, I was really skeptical of business. And I thought that business was totally uncreative and extractive and immoral in a lot of cases. Looking at big businesses, how they would, you know, utilize sweatshops or pollute rivers, contribute to climate change. I sort of saw business as this big evil thing. And then this was as a high school kid. Yeah. Where did that like I think how going to like you know, being in a in a primary, probably, probably liberal environment, going to a very progressive Catholic school? that focus a lot on kind of ethics and also just, you know, being in Northern California, it's kind of, that was the birthplace of the hippie movement. And also just sort of, I don't know, I think growing up in the nineties, you saw a lot in the media of how big companies were bad. And then the world trade organization protests and all these things, America, American interests, American, you know, empire and American exceptionalism kind of, through the Bush administration and those ties to Halliburton, things like that. You kind of, you know, as a 17 year old kid, you don't have the level of detail or a complexity, but you're left with this kind of, oh, you know, people in power are corrupt and and business isn't in bed with power.
0: You so
1: grew up in North Carolina. Uh, I totally grew, grew up California. in North California. <laughs> California. Yeah. But then I I took this class at, at Brown in entrepreneurship because I was interested in this, this concept of okay, well, it looks like business isn't just extractive. It can also be creative. It can also be something that, you know, again, growing up in Northern California, Google and all of those, you know, at the time, like Yahoo, right? All of these businesses in the turn of the the 21st century were totally revolutionizing the way that people think and work and play. And that I realized that too was business. That was tinkering and it was technology and it was creativity and it was software, but it was also business. I thought that that was really interesting. And we, we studied this case study in the class about Dansk design, which is dance a- dance design. Dansk design is a mid-century modern pottery and house oh, furnishing Dansk. company. Dansk. I thought D- dance revolution. Came. Oh, no, not dance No, not <laughs> dance, dance. dance revolution. Dansk. And it was this, this guy who was this Danish potter who lived on this island. And every morning he would get up in his rowboat and he would row to his shack where he had a potter's wheel. And he made these amazing works of, of pottery. And an American businessman discovered this at some you know pottery fair in Europe and said, this is amazing and I can work with you to mass produce these and bring, bring this to the world. And he basically said, you know, the potter said, well, these are handmade, hand-thrown objects. There's no way that you can scale up production of them and maintain the level of quality. And the American businessman said, said, take it, trust me, and and let's see if we can do it. And they were able to figure it out. And it was from that 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 the concept of Danish modern design and Danish ceramics and porcelain cookware started to enter the global design conversation and influenced, you know, many many generations of designers, artisans and really permeated how we, you know, how we live our lives today.
0: A precursor of
1: IKEA of sorts? In or? a way. Yeah. yeah, in a way. You could make the argument that they were proto IKEA of sorts, but they weren't as affordable. But they did use business to bring good design to the world. And I when I heard that story, I thought okay, here's an opportunity and here's a case where business is taking a good idea that's small and turning it into a good idea that's big. And I think it was that that started to make me, that started to click for me that entrepreneurship and business wasn't just a means to a livelihood and it wasn't just an avenue to unchecked power, but what it was was a flywheel and a growth opportunity for good ideas that are in line with your personal principles, values, and sense of purpose. And in this
0: case, being the spreading of beautiful design without sacrificing on quality, what were the other kind of
1: – I mean, I think beauty Beauty sounds so superficial. Yeah. I mean, I think there is something about the ergonomics of it, the human experience, the emotional resonance of cooking, the role of those kind of things in hosting people, bringing people in your home, creating intimacy, these kind of things in the kitchen and the hearth. There there are these totems of family, in a way, and and totems of the maternal and paternal instinct to to provide and to create. So it's not just about these things were beautiful, right, like a Prada handbag to me i think there's a i think some sort of a deeper truth in them got it and so you're you're at brown taking entrepreneur
0: entrepreneurial entrepreneur classes how are you f- tactically
1: thinking about what you're going to do well I, th- I actually thought that i was going to follow my parents footsteps and in go into film and video you know i took this one entrepreneurship class but i started taking these modern culture and media classes where we would study like french critical theory and watch old movies and things like that and at some point i was like this is absurd to to major in and i can teach myself this stuff and so i kind of took a risk and said well i'm why don't i try my hand at this introduction to economics class and i absolutely hated it you know i the way that economics is taught in universities in america is completely absurd it's completely absurd i took so i took this intro class but i was like there's something here The professors and the textbook authors just haven't figured it out yet. And so I just kept taking the classes. And then when I got into more senior classes and then I finally took a corporate finance class, I was like, ah, this is interesting. This idea that you can ascribe a value to anything and you can have a logical and a creative framework for valuing something. And that allows you to bring in resources to a project. That to me was really cool. So I suffered through those basic econ classes, and then I got to the more interesting stuff. And that's kind of, I think, what what really clicked for me was the power of corporate finance and these tools to bring resources into a project, and the entrepreneurial process, which is to actually empathize with customers, understand a market, and use those resources to execute a project. What did that translate as to? You graduated and... You ended up working where? I actually took a job at Lehman Brothers right before that they went bust, which was fascinating. So this is 2008? Yeah, 2008. Your I class graduated. of 08? Yes, yeah, exactly. Of college. How did
0: you make
1: that leap from,
0: you know, you got design thinking and, you know, film and creative backdrop and economics and corporate finance and mission. How did that like translate into like, yeah, high frequency Yeah, I mean, it wasn't trading? super linear, <laughs>
1: but I had a friend working at Lehman Brothers in Tokyo, and I had done some traveling, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could find a company to put me in Tokyo so that I could live in Japan, get closer to Asia, and kind of experience another culture and learn a lot? And so that's where I, I, I went directly out of college to investment banking in Japan. Oh,
0: wow. So yeah. a big part was the motivation to get to Asia.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a, When I was in college, I sort of had this realization, which was that I wanted to live my life like a character in a book. And I wanted to make decisions to make for the most interesting story of that book. Yeah, wow. So, so many of the things, so many of the decisions that I make, like things like that, that might not seem like li- linear from a, a career development point yeah. of view, I, I made those decisions because I wanted to have an adventure. I love adventure, you know? Wow. So that that's really what motivated that. And it was the book to be read by whom was it meant to be read? Oh, that's a good rat Awakenings <laughs> question. I mean, that's a question that at the time I had no idea, right? I just thought it would be cool to experience. Yeah. But, but I think that now you're tapping into an, a, a really interesting question, which is, what are you trying to prove? Yeah. You know, are you trying to prove something to someone else that's looking at your life and making a judgment of that's interesting or not? Or are you fully present and living in the moment? You know, I think that that's a really interesting kind of question as a trigger, right? I haven't figured out happiness. I haven't figured out contentment. I have what I think is a winning strategy to lead a life of adventure, but it's, it's far from figured out. Oh man. Oh, I'm I'm rubbing. (laughs) I got
0: the Austin Powers, Dr. Evil grin. I'm planting a flag. We're coming
1: back to that. Great. Um, Yeah. You represent, by by the way, I just want to tell the listeners that okay i'm your biggest fan so i've been reading rad reads for years i've been listening to the podcast i've been you know waiting with every bated breath for you know every every time you text and call me so i i, I kind of know how your brain works and i've been preparing for this session
0: oh man i don't know if that's a that's thank you and our audience will decide how this conversation was co-opted or not okay <laughs> So you were at Lehman for during the bust?
1: Yeah. And then I went to a Japanese bank with my team. Because basically yeah. got laid off or they uh, shut down. They kind of, one bank gave an offer to hire everyone. Oh, uh, okay. Sort of carte blanche. We ended up going to another bank.
0: And so y- you represent kind of, I've been looking for this person, right? Which is the the millennial that graduated in the financial crisis, like started, entered the workforce in the financial crisis and so my question to you is how does the financial crisis because you literally were at the heart of it impact your view on your own economic mobility or career mobility
1: Well in many ways you know when you talk about the millennial like I didn't have much to lose yeah. right so a lot of the people that I worked with that had been working for much longer they had security they had securities, right? Investments, assets that dwindled in value at that time. And so I think there was a real sense of loss there. For me, it was highly conceptual because yes, maybe there was a fear of me losing my job or something like that. But man, I was brand spanking new at the beginning of my career, I had I didn't have that kind of, you know, a nest egg or anything like that. Like I didn't really feel any kind of risk. And and I think, you know, in terms of economic mobility or, I guess, sense of opportunity, it wasn't like I was giving up some kind of amazing ticket, right, to success by choosing to leave the financial world, right? It was the the pit of the crisis. And I I, I had been on this kind of twisting and turning path that I never – I wasn't one of these – kids that like wanted to be an investment banker knew, yeah. <laughs> knew what that was since age 12. Yeah. Right. You want to build a treehouse, Yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah. So I think that it, I don't know if it was such a, such a giant factor, but I think that there was a sense of potential possibility and opportunity. And I probably read somewhere that so many great American businesses got started yeah. in recessions yeah. and in depressions. Did you feel like you had been dealt with an unfair hand, having graduated? Oh, God, absolutely not. Yeah, I, have, I am. I am the luckiest person on planet Earth. I n- never once felt I was dealt an unfair hand. I have the mo- I have the most amazing hand of any. Yeah. Do you, do you think your peers
0: feel that? No, I had, I don't think so. Yeah. I okay. Have a lot so maybe of that's a that millennial trope, right? Of like graduating in the depths of the financial crisis and and seeing like a lack lack of traditional opportunity with air quotes.
1: Yeah. You know, I, and I also think, I mean, maybe a lot of millennials, quote unquote, you know, not to generalize, but probably look at that earlier generation and say they kind of sold their soul a little yeah. bit. And I think millennials probably more so than any other generation want to blur the lines between professional and personal yeah. work and play and kind of purpose and livelihood. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to fuse those two things together. Yeah. So... The real opportunity I think people see is the ability to do what they love, right? Which is literally WeWork's slogan. Yeah. <laughs> good branding. Good <laughs> good copywriting. Yeah, they know their market.
0: <laughs> and so then you started Asia Asia
1: Freewheeling Enterprises. A- Asia Wheeling, yeah. Asia Wheeling. Yeah, my I had done some traveling with a friend of mine right out of college and it was about a year and a half of of working that we said, you know, we're only young once. We've we've been working, but we don't feel like we're really like you know, hitting our stride in our careers. I was at this Japanese bank now kind of mired in bureaucracy. And we said, let's travel around Asia on folding bicycles for a year. And so we we had both biked a lot at at Brown and, and we both went on a similar trip right after college, as I mentioned, but we never did it with folding bicycles. We rented bicycles along the way. And so we fired off all these letters and emails and we got the bike sponsored and a couple of other sponsors and of course, you know, financed it ourselves. And we, we did this amazing meandering journey uh, from 23 con- to 23 countries, over 100 cities, you know, as far southeast as Indonesia, as far west as Istanbul, as far north as the Trans-Siberian uh, and through, you know, Taiwan, uh, Western China, India, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, you name it. So that was an amazing, eye-opening experience that really shaped me as a person. What is it about the folding element of the bicycle that makes this different? Well, what what's amazing about it is you can have one bicycle for the whole trip, rather, and 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 in a lot of these places you can't rent bicycles. You know, you can't rent bicycles in Uzbekistan. You have to look very hard to do that. So the folding bicycles allowed us to fold them up and then put them on trains buses, ferries, planes, so we can actually travel with our bikes. So in some cases, we would literally land a plane and then at the airport, bike away from the airport or bike to the airport, fold up the bikes and get on the plane. When we would do the same thing at train stations and at ferry terminals and everything like that. Yeah. So we would like bike to the ferry terminal in Qingdao, fold up these bikes, put them on a ferry, and then you know, 14 hours later, you're in Seoul yeah. on a bike. It was pretty cool. And how did you fund it? Just savings? Savings. And it was actually much less expensive than you'd, than you'd expect. I mean, we took very little air travel, actually. We took trains and overground transport when we could. Food is very inexpensive. And in some cases, hotels like were like $7 a night. And we, we, we did, we're not fancy travelers. Yeah. Wow.
0: What were some of the th- ways in which that changed you?
1: Well, so basically, you dissolve this concept of comfort zone. I mean, of, of course, we all have our comfort zone and, and, and outside of our comfort zone, but you become very, very natural, comfortable, and really excited to break through the known and into the unknown. We were, we were changing cultures, languages, foods, you know, ethnic groups every couple of days. And so you get used to having no routine. You get used to showing up in a city and going to a random restaurant, opening a menu of a language you can't read and just kind of pointing to something or walking around the restaurant and looking at things and trying to pantomime like, what's that? Yeah. You know, or you'd see things with like strange English translations and we would just order the weirdest possible thing on the menu. It was, it was almost a game. Yeah. And I think that that, that concept of sort of being at home with the world and, and dissolving your comfort zone a bit when it comes to those things that at the end of the day, you know, don't the concept of comfort zone about fear and safety for that, that made a lot of sense when we were cavemen and when we were living on the Savannah and we could have been attacked by a saber to tiger or a lion short from being, you know, robbed by the police in Kazakhstan. I never really felt like I was in danger. And, and I, and I think that in, in general, Asia values peace. You know, I don't know if we could have done this trip in Brazil To be honest, I don't even know if we've done this trip in Barcelona, but where we were and the environments that we were in, they felt very safe, very welcoming. And all that, the concept of kind of safety, you realize that people are people wherever you are. uh, And if you have the right sort of energy about you and you have the right openness for people, then you will get good energy back.
0: Yeah. Wow. Did, did that trip teach you anything about happiness or contentment? Oh man. You were young. You were
1: like early 20s? Yeah, I was 20, 23. 23. Yeah. Did teach me about happiness or contentment? Well, I think one important part of happiness and, and contentment is physical exertion, physical exercise. You know, I guess so many of the things that we're like graded on or that's like respected is about the intellectual and about the mental. And for me, like the runner's high is very important to my sanity. And the kind of experience of riding a bicycle, of exerting yourself every day, that gets your endorphins going, your dopamine, your serotonin, all this kind of stuff, the sunshine. It's not like intense, right? I mean, no, it's, it's tiring. Not, it's not intense, but it's some kind of exertion, yeah. even if you spend the whole day walking around. And it's hot as fuck, it's right? Been, <laughs> in some cases, yeah. But it also taught me that you know, you know you also don't become happy just by moving around and just by escaping, right? And, and, and just by kind of having one amazing experience after the other, like it was great. Don't get me wrong, but you can't live your life like that forever. I think you have to sort of settle down and, and, and sow your seeds at some point, but I got to think more about that guy, but I also highly recommend everyone do something like that. I think it, I think it gives you so much perspective on like the world that we live in here in New York and you know, it just allows you to better empathize with people. Totally.
0: Is that settling down, is it routine or is it social or is it geographical? If you had to kind of... What do you mean? What, what kind of settling down? Well, when you I, said you can't keep traveling oh, and can't, can't keep changing cities, going on an adventure. Yeah. Like what is that core yearning to settle
1: with quotes? Well, I, th- I think it's a, f- I mean, I think a fear of boredom and a fear of irrelevance drives drove me and drives people, and also curiosity and excitement, you know, drives people to go on these kind of journeys and drove me to go on these journeys. But what I realized was that that will, you know, ultimately, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's something in the, deep in the human consciousness or psyche that makes you say, I, I want to go have a homeland, I want to find a, a wife. I want to create a family. You know, I think that there's like very deep-seated, I feel very deep-seated motivations to do those things, even though I also love freedom. And that's one of my, probably one of my biggest points of tension in my life is the trade-off between freedom and commitment, right? I love freedom and I love seeking freedom. And then on the other hand, I'm attracted to commitment and things that, I think will make me truly happy in the long run, and do make me truly happy, like love and family and these kinds of things. Oh man, and it's <laughs> and, and it's sort of. I mean, Kanye has been in the news a lot in the last <laughs> couple of days, and I'm I want to be careful about that. But you know, I recently learned that if you follow kind of Kanye's narratives mm-hmm. in Life of Pablo, and in, and there's actually a podcast about this. What so much of what he talks about is the tension between freedom and independence and family. Oh wow. Whoo! Yeah,
0: you're my dragon energy, man.
1: <laughs> yeah. Can we let's pick another animal? You're my kitten energy, okay <laughs> We love kittens. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so you come back and you start Sir Kensington's. How mm-hmm. how does one get off a bike in Asia and start a condiments business in downtown New York City? Where did the inspiration come from? And tell us about Sir Kensington's.
1: Yeah, so we actually we started. Was it with the biking? Front? No, it wasn't. Oh. It was my was my good friend from from college, Mark, and he's my co-founder. And so we actually it wasn't that we you know put stopped Asia Wheeling and then had this idea. We actually had the idea in college. So it was one of many kind of harebrained schemes that you know we slash I and other friends came up with. And one day when we were still in college, we were talking about how strange it was that every aisle of the supermarket had better-for-you products and was getting better and better. You know, there was organic dairy, there was grass-fed beef, cage-free eggs, organic cereal. But in condiments, and specifically ketchup, there wasn't any innovation in 70 years, right? The ketchups were like Heinz and all these things that were just copies of Heinz, packaging, product, you name it. And when you pick up a bottle of the stuff, it looks more like an industrial product than a food product. It's high fructose corn syrup and tomato concentrate and flavoring oils and all this kind of stuff. So we had this idea, which was, could we make ketchup from real food ingredients in the way that we wanted to eat with a more savory flavor profile, more texture, and at the same time, make it ketchup that America would want to eat because it was what they were used to, but it wasn't, you know, it it wasn't the same stuff that they grew up with. And it represented a kind of a balance between novelty and nostalgia. So we had this idea that if we were to create a better ketchup that tasted better and have better ingredients, it would be cool. But unless it really attracted attention and kind of broke through in culture, it wasn't ever going to attract a following. So that's how we decided to call it Sir Kensington's because we said, okay, if Heinz is Americana, let's be English, and if they're in plastic, let's do glass, and if they're squeezing, then let's be scooping. So we we had a, a strategy to create basically an opposite ketchup to Heinz that was better than Heinz. This was in college. In college, yeah. So we started to we, we so made, you made it on our own. That idea, or you yeah. actually started? To- well, we we started making it, and we threw a couple of ketchup parties. I was actually just looking at pictures of it last night reminiscing and then we tried to mothball the idea when we graduated, but then people kept coming to us and saying, hey, what's going on with that, that ketchup? Can I buy some? Another friend of ours, like friends, yeah, yeah, one of our uh, uh, one of our original co founders said, you know, you guys are graduating. Let me keep running with this. And so he did a bunch of research around how we might be able to manufacture it and finance it, and, and we did some research around how to enter the market and you know how to design labels and all this kind of stuff. And then it was it was Mark, my partner, who really, when I was on Asia Wheeling, I was floored when he said that he was going to pursue this full time. And so I said, great, I'll join you when I'm back. So we began really just knocking on the doors of grocery stores and specialty retailers, restaurants, and growing a company from there, which was my dream in a lot of ways. And I would imagine that, I mean,
0: ketchup is an institution. Yeah cracking that would be like cracking healthcare or huh. these like gigantic monolithic I think healthcare is way more complicated.
1: <laughs> yeah, healthcare is way more complicated. I mean, but it is, you know, healthcare is more of an operations challenge. This is more of a marketing Yeah, challenge. So this was how many years ago? 10? Ten? 10 years ago we had the idea. 8 years ago we started the business. Yeah. And so, you know, we catch up was really hard. And it wasn't until we started making mayonnaise that the business really took off. Oh. Uh, okay. Yeah, and mayonnaise is now the vast majority of our sales. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so Ketchup is really hard.
0: Would you say you hit your objective with ketchup as, as a product, not Sir Kensington's as a brand? Not
1: yet. Not yet. We're still just a niche brand, yeah. still just a niche product. Vast majority of America doesn't know about us. Yeah. Our mission is to bring integrity and charm to ordinary and overlooked food. And unless we are really a known quantity, unless we're a household brand, Mm -hmm. then we're not going to be in enough pantries to make a difference. We are not at that IKEA level yet. We're not at the dance design level yet. So we're still very much in process, very much on a journey to find more customers that are in love with what we do Mm -hmm. and to find better ways to align our business with as a force for good. And to from when it comes to upstream and the farm workers and the production capacity and all the things that go into making our products, how do we use the the money and the resources that we're spending on that to do good? And then downstream with customers, consumers, community, how do we educate, how do we entertain, and how do we improve people's lives with the products that we make and the communications that we put out there? And then how do we as leaders in our business – when it comes to our team members, give people an opportunity to develop, you know, allow people to work with dignity, and to work in a, in a values-driven environment of servant leadership? And how do we turn our company into a university of sorts where people can come in and learn and they can either graduate, if the time is right, or they can become tenured professors? Yeah, wow,
0: okay. So much to unpack there. There's a skeptics view on you know, mission-driven businesses. For sure. I'm one of them. On, you know, like f- like food, right? Condiments. Like that counter-argument would be probably it's ketchup, it's mayonnaise. What is the mission behind that? And and not saying this about Sir Kensington's, but people are slapping on that, like, we care about all these social causes, Buy our product? Like, what differentiates like your approach to your mission, like the things that you truly care about versus like marketing
1: shtick that is trying to get people to like pull on emotional purse strings? Hmm. I don't think there's one specific answer. I think one is it's absolutely rooted in the fundamental product values and the ingredients that we use. So if you take eggs, for instance, right? Like eggs are laid by chickens and those chickens have a life and those chickens can be treated well or they cannot be treated well. And so by using certified humane free range eggs, we put both a, a better product out there in terms of the way that the, the food system and the kind of humane, humanely raised chickens. At the same time also, it tastes better and it's a, it's a superior product. I don't think that on its own talking about those product values are going to actually sell the product and make it bake breakthrough. Yeah. It has to be in service of a better product that people prefer and that yeah. tastes better. And obviously it costs more. So they're, they've got to be willing to pay for that as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so whether that's with you know non-GMO ingredients that speak to kind of monocultures and the eliminating monocultures in the food system and in agriculture that have all these other potential knock-on effects, whether it's organic ingredients that reduce the use of pesticides and chemicals. And then that's kind of all the upstream stuff. And then I think on the downstream side, it's one of the biggest tools that we have and the biggest potential that we have as a company is in how we choose to communicate. And I believe that if we can communicate around the superpowers of food, it's power to create community and intimacy. It's, its power to enable people's creativity and curiosity in cooking, and enable people's generosity in serving others, and we can actually connect a story for what what good that food does and how that then relates both to people's lives and how it relates to the food system that they otherwise wouldn't have seen, I think that is what really unlocks it versus just talking about the craveability of it or the taste of it. I will say, though, that we are not a company that's saving the world, quote unquote. And I think there are some companies that are that are really truly rooted in doing good and and fixing big problems. You know, one of our our sister companies is Seventh Generation, which makes cleaning products, and they have been you know for more than two decades single minded about eliminating toxins and chemicals from from homes, from people's bodies, from waterways, and it's been a long slog for them. But Twenty that, years, you said. Oh, more than 20 years. Yeah. That company has been, I don't know exactly when it was founded, but it's longer than most people think. And their products didn't always work that well either, you know, and they'll be the, they, they will admit that, but now they, they work amazingly well. And that was a company that was really founded on doing good in the food world. It's interesting because even by being kind of ethically neutral, we're, we're much better, I think. And we're, and we're much more morally aligned than some of these big food companies that, in the second half of the 20th century, were just literally engineering products to be as addictive as possible and as inexpensive as possible, and finding new ways to make cheaper sugar and new ways to make cheaper fat and new ways to to basically cheat the nutrition facts system that that is legally required to be on these yeah, packages. Almost like casino. I mean, yeah, I, and I think, and these are, you know, these are some of the products that people love. And like, I personally like love to eat an Oreo on mm-hmm. occasion. <laughs> yeah. And if you look at what's in an Oreo, yeah. it's a science experiment.
0: Yeah. Probably the whole CPG in- industrial complex of yeah. processed food, right?
1: And, yes. And for, for the longest time in American culture, I mean, not the longest time, but really in the second half of the 20th century, food was not seen as an ethical question or an ethical choice. And then because of the internet and the way that information moves through our our society and the breakdown of the TV industrial complex that big food used to indoctrinate people, all of a sudden people started waking up. And that isn't to say that everything happening in the food movement now is righteous or ethically aligned because you get a tremendous amount of misinformation and people saying that they understand nutrition. Nobody really understands nutrition. You know, as a company, we don't make any nutritional claims about what's healthier for you or better for you. We never use the term good fats or anything like that, at least to, you know, to declare these things are good fats or they're good for you or anything like that. But it's a very complex world. Yeah. Wow. We could do a whole podcast just about that. But I will say, just to sort of put a bow on this, that we're like 1% done. Ours has been a process of awakening and and. Really, it's only been recently because of, frankly, our partnership with Unilever that has allowed us to not just think about how do we survive, but how do we thrive and how do we use business as a force for good. And we have a little bit of security there that we've started to ask the question, how can we truly align our kind of purpose as individuals with our purpose as a company and use the position of power and resources that we're in to bring integrity and charm to extraordinary and overlooked communities?
0: So you scooped me in the podcast that you guys
1: sold the company about a year ago now. Exactly, yeah, just about. Sorry, I, I was wondering if you wanted to, oh, to introduce yeah. that. But no, yeah. that's that's good. Yeah, I bet you scooped me. We did choose to get acquired last year by Unilever. Which to any skeptics on you know.
0: Business for a force of good is definitely someone believes that it works. <laughs> oh, absolutely.
1: And they are they are leaders in this space. I mean they are Do I, they own seventh generation? They do. they do. Yes. They own seventh generation. They own Ben and Jerry's. I think they own more B Corps, certified B Corporations than any other multinational. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I believe they are the world's most progressive consumer goods company. At least at at that scale. You know, operating in, in more than hundred and fifty countries. And they're asking the thorny questions about how do you do good business in Myanmar? How do you do good business in Iran? And how do you evolve a challenged supply chain around palm oil, for instance, which is a tremendously important ingredient for both food and for soaps and cleaning products? And it's a fascinating company, and I think one that since the, the late 1800s has been rooted in a, a kind of a noble capitalism that is a, aligned around stakeholders rather than just shareholders.
0: So in your early thirties you saw the company, it's you know, people can look up, it's a it's a nice transaction for founders and investors. When you signed the closing doc or whatever document, what what
1: was going through through your mind about life? Well, it was incredibly empowering and frankly, it was the beginning of a a dissolving of fear of failure. You know, I mean, we, by selling the company and by sort of finding a home for it and while of course we could have continued growing the business and we're growing the business now, but we could have grown the business independently. We had made a lot of promises to investors, right? Whenever you take investors' money, you make those promises. We also made a lot of promises, I think, implicitly to ourselves and socially, that you know, when you when you take that moniker of entrepreneur or founder, you you wonder, will I be defined as a success or will I be defined as a failure? Yep. Right? And I don't actually think that people care that much. Yeah, and I don't think that <laughs> life is black and white like that. But I think they, the internal monologue is you know, success or failure. And it was incredibly liberating and empowering. And it was this, again, dissolving of, of fear because it was in that moment that I realized that we can no longer fail, at least existentially, yep. financially as a company. And so fear is like this grip on you. You don't always know that it's there. But when some sort of external stimuli will eliminate that fear, it doesn't eliminate it overnight. You don't go from being like, oh, I'm so afraid we're going to fail to like, woohoo, like yeah. we've won the lottery and everything. And like, now let's take a bunch of risk and do a bunch of cool projects. And, you know, I, I start fear- living life. Yeah, yeah. Start living life. Fear is like this grip on you. And the neuroplasticity of the brain has all of these habits. Right. And so it's the grip of fear slowly, slowly lets up a little bit. Of course, logically, you know, we can't fail. We've sold the company. Everyone's celebrating. But emotionally, it takes a little bit of time for you to come out of your cocoon. And so now we're asking these questions and have been asking these questions about, you know, wait a minute, were we thinking too small? You know, if we were making all these decisions to optimize for not failing, how do we now make decisions to optimize for, Truly thriving and leaning into our mission, leaning into using business as a force of good, taking more risk and having more tolerance for empowering our team to take risks and and really living this life of servant leadership and it's incredible. I mean, I think it's it's this current stage in the journey and of course it also comes with lots of challenges too because we are part of now, you know, a, a company with 30,000 employees. Yeah. But at the same time, and we, we do, you know, have independence, we keep our office, we keep our team, but we also have a lot of systems integrated and and systems can be really challenging for a startup. But now I think we're in an amazing place that you know, personally and emotionally I I feel some relief. But it's not something that's overnight. And it's also not something that's permanent either. So I think there is absolutely kind of a euphoria and an invincibility that you might feel. And then you kind of return to reality, right? And then, But what's beautiful about it too is you realize that like, I'm not in this for the exit. You know, I'm in this to build. I'm in this for the journey and I'm in this for the people. And I think that's what's so cool is just being reminded of that.
0: Yeah. What about, so on on the personal level, right? I mean, you check that box. You are a successful entrepreneur with an exit under your belt. How do you measure yourself to that bar of success?
1: Do you feel like you're a success? No, I don't feel like I'm a success. To me, success is contentment. And I think that I, you know, you could absolutely, you could say that narrative and you could describe success in that narrative, But ultimately for me, success is like, how do you feel every day? And I currently feel like I don't have as much control over my own time and intentionality over my own time as I'd like. I don't feel like I spend enough time with my family. I don't feel like I have enough presence to give to my 14 month old son and my amazing wife. I will admit that I have trouble with my off switch, right? I love to build and I love to build so much that it's almost a form of addiction or workaholism. And I think that that is my next challenge is now that we can't fail. It's like, well, Scott, like, can we, can you spend more time at home? And I want to say yes. And I do say yes, but now it's really hard for me to turn intention into action.
0: Why is it so hard to spend time at home? And I'll share, I could talk about that as well.
1: Well, like I said before, there's this, there's this tension between freedom and exploration and what's next and and home and commitment and what you know and what's what's always going to be there. And like as I love to kind of vagabond and you know if someone invites me to a dinner with a bunch of interesting people, I'm like, "Oh yeah, I want to do that." And and I have to get in the practice of reminding myself to say no as a default. But even saying no as a default, there's some stuff that I just really have to say yes to or travel outside the country. But I also think that I'm just I'm not as good, frankly, at the intentional head game that, you know, you profess on Rad Reads. Profess, don't act. (laughs) Like, you know, all those things about like, you know, productivity gurus where it's like, wake up at six in the morning and make a list of like the top 10 things you want to do in the week and then make a top 10 list of what you want to do in 10 years and then rank them and like assign different like energy values to them and like predict how and like ask the question of like, who's going to enable this goal? It's like all that kind of stuff. My brain is so bad at it. I love to be in states of creative flow. I love to be present. I don't like to plan for the future. And it's a real challenge for me. And it's something, it's a growth area for me that I want to get better at.
0: How does one stay, because I'm struggling with this too, how does one stay, I'll ask it or state it, that state of creative flow versus being a parent and a spouse? There's no awakening for me on that dimension because you know I'm really good at turning my phone off and like I don't surf the internet and things like that. But I do feel that urge to constantly create and learn and ideate, and my family pays the price for that. They pay the price through through my lack of presence, right? And and you pay the price too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And it is that contentment where if I put myself in your shoes, like I had this kind of career success with air quotes where I could take a break. I took a break, tried to find myself and stumbled into this accidental new career that I have now that I'm decently good at. It's starting to make money, you know, it's self-sufficient, but that contentment feeling is so fleeting. You know, it's just like, okay, now what? Right. Like I need to, do I need to write a book or like my, my coach posed a challenge to me. He's like, can you spend a day doing nothing and thinking about nothing?
1: Yeah. That's a good question. I can't. Yeah. I don't think you could. I don't think I could either. Let me ask you another question. Yeah. Does the satisfaction of your conscious desires actually satisfy you? Does the satisfaction
0: of your conscious desires, meaning my conscious like desires, like the things that you want, yeah,
1: when you get them? Oh no! Isn't that crazy? Yeah, right. And this is the this is I think the the funny thing, right? Yeah. It's like we feel. I mean, this goes back to Buddhism, yep. obviously, right? Of desire of is attachment. suffering. Yeah, desire uh, attachment is suffering, and I think that that's ultimately where I need to go. Is not how do you live your life like a book? Not how do you create a company that's in line with their values and sell it. And not just how do you spend more time with your family. I think it's how do you get in the habit and train yourself to not go after what you want. Or or not or not at least be attached to the things that you convince yourself you want. Yeah. That's that's, that's happiness yeah. for me. Yeah. That's contentment. Is being able to sort of oh, that looks like an interesting book that I that that I think I would enjoy reading and just let it float by. Let it float by, right? I have a stack of <laughs> economists and New Yorkers and oh national my God. geographics in- at Information home. FOMO, right? Or- in- and I'm afraid to throw them away because what if nestled in there, there's a fascinating article about some little company that's revolutionizing a corner of a market in China. that one day I can meet the founder Right and collaborate with them. Yeah. Like I'm like, what if I what if but, I lose but let, that? But, but let's let's press on that because yeah. I feel the exact same yeah. thing.
0: So you you see this kernel of an idea of a cool founder. I saw you tweet one today, and then you meet them. Then what happens? Like like play out this scenario.
1: You meet them, you invest in them. You, well, you we, I mean, first of all, you develop a kind of a human relationship. Okay. You know, you you understand who are they, where are they coming from, what's their vision. Yeah what are their values. I think that to me is sort of the most important. And he, and and I think that that is a form of investment, right? Yeah. In a way it's just emotionally kind of investing them and bringing them into your community. Yeah. Then I think for me number 2 is connecting dots. Okay. So I love people and I and I love connecting people. And so and I often, you know, I have friends that are artists, I have friends that are you know, engineers, I have friends that are entrepreneurs, I have friends that are investors, I have friends that don't do any of those things. And I sort of, I think that's a, a little bit special with, that I've that I've found myself in a position of kind of being in the middle okay. of my own world. And I love to connect entrepreneurs with people that can help them.
0: Okay, but I'm going to I'm going to push you on like the what happens once that happens. Oh, yeah. So you connect some dots. Yeah, you 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 read the Economist. You see yeah. a cool thing. You learn about the idea. You connect the person to the uh, to investor to entrepreneur. Right.
1: Then what happens after that? Well, and th- and then I think that that's this concept of of you know your life is a story. Now all of a sudden that's like one more thing that you've helped put into the world. Ah, okay. So there's right? the a birthing when you, of Yeah. Yeah. A birthing of something and and an authorship. Because let's say that entrepreneur, like maybe you maybe I do invest a bit in them and connect them to people and then they go on to do something and and they're able to achieve something. And it's like, I look at that and I go, oh, wow, I had a hand in I that. Was a, I was a yeah, part of Yeah, love, and I love that feeling.
0: Yeah. You know? And and, I, and I'm only pushing back not to be a dick. No, not uh, at all. I mean,
1: this, <laughs> these are like super important questions because you're asking, why is it worth your time, Norman? Yeah.
0: And turning it upside down because you just told me and I affirm the same belief that that feeling... It's remember where we started. It was like an economist laying there. That's where we started. Yeah, yeah. Like the 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 anxiety of an, a pile of economists right. turned into the desire, like, to birth a beautiful idea into the world that could have tremendous impact. And the cost of it is what what the Buddhists would call dukkha or suffering. And and you and I would say the the cost to it is borne by. The inability to be present for, guess what, the most important human connection in the world—our wives and our children, right? And and I, I, I'm getting animated about it because this is this is my struggle every day, and I can't even purport to have a solution to it. But I, I think one solution is, is just noting the irony yes. of it. Yeah, it's <laughs> and, absurd,
1: and saying it out loud, right? And you all f- often talk about the fear of death. Yeah. And like I've told you before that I don't, you don't really have that. I don't fear death literally, yeah. yeah. but I do exhibit the symptoms that someone who fears death has, which is I want to create babies. I want to create versions of myself that live beyond me. Yeah. Well, like lega- I mean, right. L- and legacy, so, right? That's legacy, right? That's exactly the same thing is, you know, when you, when you do help an entrepreneur or when you help a creative, you're inserting a bit of your own self, you're, conceptual DNA into these things and then you know like to your point I'm neglecting my like literal child your, and your literal legacy yeah, right your literal legacy and so it's and I, I think these are kind of new problems yeah I think that's humanity of is some facing, top right? of those like, hierarchy for <laughs> like well for, for like hundreds of thousands of years uh, you couldn't really communicate with anyone outside your village right and you sort of didn't have an option of what job you chose Right, you were either a farmer or you did some sort of a trade yep. that your parent, that your father did, and now we live in this super bizarre world, right? So it's like I don't know. It's very complex. And well, contradictory. I think there's
0: also one thing that that, as you will appreciate as a storyteller, that that's missing in today's world is religion. Yeah. Uh, yes. Absolutely. Uh, missing in the sense that in that existence that you just described, all of these questions who am I? What's my legacy? What happens to me after? Yeah. Who judges me? Who judges me? W- what are my values? My morals? Yeah.
1: We used to have he, he an easy a, playbook Yeah. For yeah there was a playbook. Yeah. And so we're off- and now we don't have that. We're off
0: fending yeah. for ourselves, trying to write the playbook.
1: Yeah. Right. We're creating our own religion here. Oh, man. A replacement for religion.
0: <laughs> and so, oh man, I could- I love you, man. We could talk about this forever. And we will. And we do for our listeners, in case you couldn't tell. In the last couple minutes, tell us what's next for you someday, one day, and how our listeners can follow that trajectory.
1: Well, in terms of following it, I'm on Twitter. (laughs) I'm at S.W.H. Norton, a very, very small following. At Sir Kensington's on Instagram is a much more interesting account. But you know, for me personally, I love working on the mission at Sir Kensington's and I'm going to continue to do so for a while with my team and keep developing that. Though alongside that and in the future, other than being a great dad and spending more time at home, I do want to meet other entrepreneurs that are, that are doing really cool things. And I'm open to learning and kind of participating where I can in those stories. And so please share ideas with me and and follow along. And I kind of look forward to being part of, of more creative stories. How do you think Scott Norton in 15 years is spending his days? I definitely will be spending time teaching. Teaching. Yeah. So at least some portion of my time in some capacity. I love to teach. And so whatever I'm good at, I want to give those gifts in the form of teaching and, and communicating. And hopefully I can also be helping people with organizations, businesses, entrepreneurs, connect the dots, build, and bring bring in resources into those kind of companies as an investor or as some kind of an advisor. Because I do feel like I can kind of marry the world of capital and of entrepreneurship.
0: And maybe there'll be a fold-up bike
1: Oh, yeah. And uh, there will definitely be, especially in 15 years, when my son is 15, I mean, we're going to hike Hadrian's Wall, we're going to walk the Bernie's Oberland. I've got a long, long bucket list of, <laughs> of hikes through northern Italy and Southeast Asia, you know. So he, he's going to be traveling too. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. He's too, he's too young to do that now.
0: <laughs> awesome, man. This has been so fun. Thank you
1: very much. Thank you, Kay. Yeah, thanks. It's been an honor.
0: Thank you for listening to the Rad Awakenings podcast. For more information on all things Rad, including our weekly email newsletter, please visit us at radreads.co. This podcast is a labor of love and funded by the community's generosity. And if you're interested in supporting us, please join us as a patron by visiting patreon.com slash radreads. And of course, leaving a five-star review always goes a long way. Thanks again, and until next time.